Hi there, and welcome to episode two of Wind Your Neck In. We are absolutely delighted to be able to announce that this episode of Wind Your Neck In is sponsored by Anya Potter Jewellery. Anya Potter Fine Jewellery is an award-winning fine jewellery boutique based in historic Friar Street in the centre of Worcester. Specialising in engagement rings, which I know too well, certified diamonds and the finest pearls, as well as being able to offer a bespoke service. Anya and her team are so welcoming and urge you to pop in at any time to have your jewellery cleaned free of charge. They also offer interest-free credit and you can shop online at www.anyapotza.com. We hope you guys enjoyed the episode and please get in touch via Instagram and Twitter. Cheers. Okay, a big welcome back to episode two for Wind Your Neck In. A huge welcome to Chris Pennell. Another Worcester Warriors legend to follow up Alex Grove, who we had in episode one. So a big thank you for coming on, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. Um, we do a brief intro every time um, for any of those maniacs in Worcester who don't actually know who Chris Pennell is. He is a mass and unreal 242 Worcester caps with 421 points scored, which is fairly nice. Nice tally, isn't it? It's not too bad. Uh, when taking into consideration some of the injuries you suffered in your earlier years, I think the 200 you know, 42 caps is pretty impressive. You twice won the championship, bringing Worcester back to the premiership, backed up by one England Saxons cap in 2014 and one full English cap in 2015, playing in a tight 2015 loss to the All Blacks. All this in a career, starting with a debut against Bath in 2007 and still very much ongoing and a major part of Worcester's current push to climb to the prem table. You gotta be happy with that. That's well, a decent intro, isn't it? Thank you for reading my intro like that. <laughs> right as we move on so big thank you for coming on we're going to go through basically chronologically some of the things that you've dealt with some of the obstacles you've overcame um and some of the things you've experienced throughout your career and life so Mm -hmm. first thing i have to get off my chest most people might not know this i know it because i'm from there (laughs) you actually spent a lot of time growing up in portadown in northern ireland which must obviously explain why you're such a legend of course, it just rubs off, doesn't it? Doesn't doesn't matter how long you spend over there. But you're absolutely right, um, as you well know, because I think it's probably like the second thing I ever said to you. Yeah, straight away I was like, I'm gonna like Aren't this guy. You used to live in Northern <laughs> Ireland, Niall. We can be friends. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. I've got some great memories from Northern Ireland. I was hmm. still. It was. I was quite young. I think it was between the sort of age of eight and eleven. Um, but it was. I'd say it's probably where. Um, I really sparked my interest in rugby, actually, which I guess explains a lot because obviously Northern Ireland, Ireland in general, is all about rugby, isn't it? So, uh, but yeah, we were over there. My ex-stepfather was military, so he got posted over to Portadown. Um, Big we, military contingent in Northern Ireland. <laughs> there is. And we have to like, we were told, it's, it's actually like, it's the reason why my surname is Pennell. So I was born a Dilly. Mm. I was a Dilly up until the age of eight. And then when we moved to Northern Ireland, we almost had to have this ridiculous kind of backstory as to like why we were living there, which I mean, looking back now, I'm thinking a family of very, very English people. (laughs) There's not really many other reasons why you're going to be there. What brought you here? No comment. Yeah. (laughs) Um, my father works in telecommunications. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what we had to say. It's school. funny you say that because uh, my old man, when we were growing up in Northern Ireland, he was a policeman. Mm. Um, and I remember for years and years, my mum and dad saying, 
uh, if anyone asks uh, your dad's a teacher which he actually technically was before he yeah. joined the police but it was like basically just a cover-up story for him being in the police yeah it's bizarre isn't it but it, like i can understand it i can understand it it's a safety of your family isn't it so exactly i'd do the same i'm sure so you had a nice experience in northern ireland and then you you moved back to to, to worcester and you're educated in starbridge mm-hmm. um how was your education growing up did you enjoy your time in school there what were the differences between being in northern ireland and then moving to england apart from the class accents yeah <laughs> <laughs> i understood everything when i moved back to england yeah yeah no doubt um no, so so I actually I moved around a lot. So I I initially went to school. Uh, my first school was in a village called Fladbury, which is mm. just outside of Worcester. I then went to Pinvin Middle School for half a term before we moved to Northern Ireland when I was at um, Millington Primary School. We then actually we didn't move back to Worcester initially. We went to Warrington, then Aylesbury, then back to oh, Worcester. Wow. So so we moved around quite a bit, but. Yeah. Because of that, we made the decision for my brother and I to go to Old Swinford Hospital, which mm. was a boarding school, which just gave, gave us that continuity and that stability, which I, I'll be eternally grateful for. I absolutely loved, I loved school. Old Swinford was, and I, and I think as far as I can tell from some of the guys that, that, that have been there more recently than I, it's still a great school. Unbelievable memories. And that, and that kind of, I feel, made me really... Um, made me who I am and I had some big um, some big influences there some big role models my housemaster at that school uh, Paul Good big rugby guy as well but he was I'd say I'd say he, he and my uncle were the two biggest male role models I had growing up without those two like yeah it, like without a doubt they shaped me into into who I am yeah. for sure that's um, amazing oh yeah like, like I, I can't I can't talk highly enough of what what that school did for me and and I know you know the 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 battle that my mum in particular had to make sure we were there I mean she knows she knows she knows that this stuff that I'm grateful but yeah. I guess when you have your own kids you kind of realize like yeah you would do anything to yeah. make sure that they're in as good a place as you possibly they possibly can be I have no complaints about like my kind of education and what it the way it shaped me mm. I think moving about taught me a bit of resilience moving into new environments did it's and good. you've shown plenty of that resilience later on in your career and um, which we will get to um so we then move on to showing a huge degree of talent as you go through school you start to get picked up and you get asked to join the Worcester Warriors when you move into the environment of professional rugby did you basically find the environment and take to it like a duck in water because you showed a huge amount of ability at a very young age so again, this is where I think I've been lucky because because actually until um, until like my second or third year here at Worcester, at no point did I think I was going to be a professional rugby player. Really? So so at school, like school where rugby is very political, yeah, and it's not necessarily about talent. And I don't mm. think you can actually judge talent from watching a couple of trial games no. where you're playing with people who you don't even know. At no stage, I, I played a little bit of county. I, I played North Mids. I got selected for like a Midlands squad, but at no point did I ever think I was, I, I wasn't ever on the radar, radar for England under 18s, under 16s, anything like that. Yeah. So it was never my intention. My grand plan was to take a year out of education because uh, I got offered the contract for the academy for one year at Worcester. Yeah. And that was straight yeah. off the back of leaving school. So that was, yeah. So so I played uh, I played in a couple of A-League games while I was at school around that sort of early April. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so coming towards the end of the no- kind of normal rugby season, but school rugby had finished. I broke my leg in obviously the last game I played for Worcester that that yep. that season, and I think they probably signed me feeling guilty <laughs> because they'd taken me out of school. <laughs> And a week before my 18th birthday had shattered my ankle. So yeah. that was good. Yeah. Um, but even at that point, so I deferred my place at Loughborough University. Yeah, so I, it was never my intention to play rugby professionally and to make a career of it, which, as I say, I think helped me. Mm. I never had expectation on myself. And well, I was it takes never pressure off you and then you have the ability time. just to go and play and kind of see what happens. And I think that's a nice, it's a nice kind of manner to attack it in, but... You know, it probably took someone of your like coolness and calmness to try and attack it like that. I remember when I when I left school, I had decided I was going to be a professional rugby player, and I put everything I had into that that intention. So when I left, I joined the Ulster Academy at eighteen. I had two years in the academy and moved into a senior contract, and and I probably looked at it the opposite way to you. It was mm-hmm. like this is life or death. Now I obviously mm-hmm. have mellowed slightly, <laughs> but. Now I, you're not competitive no, at all, no, are you? Conditioning games now. <laughs> I think uh, I looked at it slightly differently, and I remember, you know, when I, you know, one day when I'm a dad, and I have a son or a daughter who goes into the kind of maybe professional rugby environment or sport environment, I wouldn't like them to live the way I lived because I was so intense, mm. and I was so there was so much pressure I put on myself to make sure I succeeded and made this go. And actually, there's so much that can go wrong. Like, mm. you know, I know. And we will get to the injuries um, later on down the line here. But your ability to look at the, that with such coolness and calmness probably is just a reflection of you as a person. That is you. That is Mr. Iceman. Like, you feel no pressure. You take the big shots at goal when it matters. Whether it comes off or doesn't, you just always take that pressure on board. So it's nice to know that you had that instilled from such a young age. Or is that how it felt? No, I, I mean, I... Don't get me wrong, I certainly am very capable of putting an awful lot of pressure on myself. Yeah. But I guess I guess certainly at a young age that the lack of expectation on myself mm. helped. It, it but allowed, why? Because you've it been allowed so, me to enjoy that environment. But you'd been so you'd done so many great things. Like you were playing, you know, for the Cavs at probably seventeen or eighteen. But it still it still never seemed reachable. Mm. It was never it was never something within my within my grasp because as far as I was concerned you had to play schoolboy England rugby yeah. to move on and be a professional. Yeah. And that is, that is you know, and this is a great example of that not having to be the case, but there is a perception that if you miss that English under 18s, 19s, 20s route, you can miss out on professional rugby. And mm. we know that's not the case. Absolutely. There's loads of guys who go into that and then get kicked out, spat out professional rugby quickly. And the, and you're an example of someone who maybe missed those avenues and then went on to become an international. Yeah, and and... And I think, like you, you look at you look at some of those kids who were exposed to that early, mm. who were sort of told when they're making the England under 16s, oh, listen, you know, you could go on, you could go on and do great things in the game, you could get 50 caps for England, etc., yeah. etc. Et like, what does that do to that kid's expectation? And yeah. then, like you say, there's so many things that can happen that will derail that yeah. that career path that are entirely out of that person's control. Who picks up those pieces? Well, like, how does that person then? It often falls on family because the professional rugby clubs, unfortunately, you know, don't not they don't care. They they don't feel a, a a sense of responsibility to do that. Like mm. I was, I remember being sat in a room with my mum, my dad, and the head of the academy at Ulster, and I remember him telling my parents, "Your son will play for Ireland." Mm. That's how much he thought of my ability at that age. Yeah. 
and I now to this day feel a sense of disappointment that I've never done that. Mm. And and you know you have to be very careful how you how you create confidence, uh, but the expect an expectation, but don't cripple those people when they when that maybe doesn't become or pan out the way they think. So I think I think that's that's massive. Mm. So like it's it's almost when you're told these things you need to almost put them to a back corner of your brain yeah. and be like do you know what what a lovely compliment that is yeah are you good enough to have played or to play for ireland mm. absolutely like <laughs> Thanks, no man. no but but seriously 100 percent you are but what is the difference between someone who's doing it and someone who isn't currently doing it mm -hmm. and that's opportunity yeah. and and so much luck like luck yeah. has so much to do with even kids getting picked up into academies absolutely and then they miss the whole thing altogether if they don't so yeah the reason you and i are sitting here now and we're playing professional rugby is because we're lucky mm. ultimately because there are probably loads of other kids that were our age mm. and we just got the rub of the green yeah. to go and do those things the guys that are playing international rugby right now are they that much different no probably not really not. And, and actually because they get exposed to that elite environment more than we do, of course they develop quicker. Mm. Of course they move on to that next level because they're in it. If we were in it, would we do that too? Probably. You'd like to think so. I would have thought so, but that's life, isn't it? That's the beauty of life, mate. Yeah. And, that, and, and I think that comes back to the word resilience that you used earlier. So talking of resilience, um, before we get to the injuries, mm. so you hit the age of 19. Yeah. And we all know the amazing stuff that you were doing whilst you were playing rugby. Can you talk us through, you know, the diagnosis of your diabetes? Because mm -hmm. it's a huge part of your life now. It's something that you are hugely passionate about. It's something that you're a trendsetter in how you attack as a professional sportsman, you know, that with some of the stuff that you do with your diet, which we will get to. So just talk us through the early stages of when you find out, you know, what you were feeling, experiencing, and then the emotions of whenever someone sat you down and said you have diabetes so i obviously didn't know any different because i felt how i felt mm -hmm. and normal is what i feel is normal mm -hmm. so um i guess the symptoms were there for quite some time really? so i left school about 80 kilos ringing mm -hmm. wet like i had yeah like very 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 skinny to the point where the academy coaches were like i'm not sure you will go mm -hmm. on because of your size um, I did a year in the academy, which, as you all know, is, especially over here, is largely about doing weights and putting size on yeah. and getting strong. So I did a year of that and I didn't grow. I stayed pretty much the same weight. Um, my strength increased because I hadn't touched the weight until I started in the academy anyway. And then it was during preseason. I felt fit. I was kind of flying around, you know, doing well, playing well mm -hmm. um, in the preseason friendlies and everything. And we did, just did a, a pretty standard blood test as we do now. And we finished, I can, I can obviously, it's like the whole flashbulb memory thing. We, f we finished training for the day. I was living at home. I'd gone, gone home, uh, eaten a huge meal, was guzzling water. I'd gone out into the garden and basically just passed out in the oh, sun. Flip me. Just because, but I was tired and I was hungry and I was thirsty, mm. which are all kind of, side effects of training hard and mm -hmm. it being pre-season yeah of course but they're also symptoms of undiagnosed type 1 diabetes mm -hmm. along with the not necessarily weight loss but lack of weight gain i yeah. guess with inability all the to put weight on 
like it, it all made sense. My mum thought I had glandular fever and, and wanted to kind of look at doing tests, etc. But I, I mean, I was fit. Like mm. I was winning bleep tests. I was yeah, no doubt. I was doing all, all all of that stuff, but with this undiagnosed condition. It's just mental. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> it's and, mental. and actually, like since I started treatment afterwards, I'm not convinced I felt any better. Really. Not really, but longevity. Like mm. at least I've got I've got stuff under control. Yeah. Um, which if you're living, you know, for a long time with high blood glucose, you get all kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. So the phone call came from the club doctor, and he just he said the blood tests had come back. My blood glucose was abnormally high. There's a good chance I've got type one diabetes, but don't worry about it. Like listen, you're in a you're in a good environment. Mm -hmm. I'm going to help you. I'm going to yeah. make sure we get the best advice available. Yeah, and this is not going to stop you from doing what you want to do. Yeah. So he kind of That's took very comforting. Oh, he took everything, all my concerns away from me mm. pretty much instantly. Uh, this was a, a guy, Terry Gasper, who was our club doctor, who was an absolute legend mm. of a man and passed away, unfortunately, um, within within sort of six months of him retiring, which yeah. is which is desperately sad. I, I heard great stories about Terry. Oh, just just a, just a very, very good man. Um, and he superb. Actually, he came in to see us, didn't he, that championship year? Oh, you're right. Yeah. yeah. yeah and yeah, that yeah, was the right. first time I'd met him. But I the sense of respect around him from guys like you and Johnny and Grozy who'd been there for years and years and years. I could just it's actually given me goosebumps thinking about it. I remember him coming in to speak mm. to us. I don't think I think he maybe died later on in that yeah. in that year. Yeah. And yeah, it just seemed like an amazing man. So to have someone like that take the reins on on your diagnosis at such a young age as mm. well, like you you don't know how you're gonna react when something like that happens. That must have made facing it a bit easier. Hundred percent. And and whenever I, whenever I give talks on diabetes and I, and I do conferences and stuff, mm -hmm. I always say how fortunate. Again, it comes down to luck. How yeah. fortunate I was to be in the environment I was in, and for my diagnosis story to be so positive. Like it was given that positive spin right from the start. Whereas I, I've met an awful lot of kids and parents who are like we were just told we can't do x y and z yeah and and yeah there are certain things that you need to be careful with yeah but it should always be about what you can do like that more that just right from the start that more positive approach yeah creates creates a better outlook for you as a young man young child whatever it is so what were some of the things you find very challenging in the start because I can't imagine you were ever someone who ate really badly because you're the consummate professional. If I had to point someone in the direction of what being a professional rugby player looks like, it wouldn't be far off what you do. So what were some of the things that you really struggled with, you know, in terms of the eating or maybe the drinking or whatever it was? So to, to be honest, like, I kind of just cracked on to a certain extent. Like, mm. yes, yes, I was, I was eating... I was eating okay. I was I was I wasn't on like an amazing diet, but mm. we're talking it's quite a long time ago now. Yeah. So like the sports nutrition side of it wasn't no it was nowhere what near it was. where it is now. Yeah. But it, I guess it was a what would have been deemed then as like a as a healthy diet. What pretty much what every other guy was eating at that time. Mm -hmm. And I was given guidelines as to how, you know, how many grams of carbohydrates on my plate. Uh, if there's X amount of carbohydrates, I need to take Y units of insulin mm -hmm. and given a bit of a formula to play around with. The challenge I had right from the start that I realized after sort of two or three months is that the, the formula I'd been given was way out of balance. So I nice. was taking about three times too much insulin than actually I needed. So, so my body was still able to process a bit of carbs at that time. My, my pancreas was still making maybe a mm. little bit of insulin every okay. now and again. 
and I was injecting way too much, which meant that my blood glucose was crashing very low. So would that make you feel really flat or like slack, tired and sleepy? Yes, uh, like faint, shaky. Um, your, your brain releases a lot of adrenaline as well because mm. it, it panics. You're going to run out. I'm going to run out of fuel. Help. So it, it just makes you feel, it makes you feel horrible and you mm. kind of lose, you lose a lot of control like mentally and your motor skills and everything go. So I was going on this roller coaster of eating big meals, big carbohydrate-based meals, which we were all told we have to do for rugby, yeah. which I was told I have to do for diabetes at the time as well. Mm -hmm. You have to have a third of your plate carbs, which is insane, but we'll come <laughs> on to that. Um, and, and yeah, so I was on this roller coaster of my blood glucose going up because of all these carbs, then plummeting because mm -hmm. of all this insulin, and then me having to shove a load of sweets in my mouth whilst mm. I'm training to keep my blood glucose up. I'd then finish training and because all those sweets then get digested, it would shoot up again. So I'd have to take more insulin, which would shoot it down again. But mm. this is like, that is what I thought diabetes was. It's mm. basically trying to manage this roller coaster as best as you can. And yeah. that, that is, as things stand, the, the kind of best practice, which mm. again, is crazy. Like it, it doesn't need to be like that. That was the biggest challenge. And then once I managed to tweak and change things over time, you get to grips with it. Yeah. And you and you start to feel more confident with a certain routine and a certain amount of insulin, etc. And then it will change again because it does. Diabetes yeah. changes constantly. And I guess one of the biggest bits of advice that I give to kids is that it's their diabetes and the way they need to learn to manage it yeah. is different to anyone else. People can give you advice, things to look out for, but you have to take ownership of it. And find your find your personalized find journey for you. Yeah. yeah, which is which is really interesting. I think it's something at such a young age to face that you've basically become a trendsetter within sport in terms of how to deal with that, and manage that. And the only other professional sportsman I'm aware of is Henry Slade. Do you know many other sportsmen? Have you touched base with any other sportsmen or women um, who have diabetes and are performing at the top end of professional sport? Yeah, there's well, there's there's more and more as yeah. as more and more kids, I guess, get diagnosed and mm. and crack on. So Henry Henry Slade, I had had a very brief encounter when he was on loan at Plymouth. I got put in touch with Henry, um, and he he basically was just like, "All right, so you've got diabetes?" I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, all right, and, you, and you're playing professional rugby. <laughs> yeah. He's like, okay, cool. That's all I need to know. I was like, yeah. do you not want any tips? He's like, no, I just want to know that it's possible and that's that's fine. I'll figure it out. I was like, happy days. Happy days. Crack Good on. luck, mate. Yeah, best of luck. <laughs> and then he goes and carves up for England, which is great. There's two others in Premiership Rugby as well. Okay. Or, uh, sorry, um, one in the Champion because uh, Kyle Cooper, the, yeah, okay. the hooker for oh, Newcastle. Okay. He's type one. And Motu Motua. The London Irish hooker. Didn't know that either. Um, he's type one. That's so amazing. As far as I know, there's us four currently, mm -hmm. unless there might well be some others. Yeah, Hopefully yeah, it could be can, ones you don't know of, yeah. but I think it shows that it can be done, and I'll tell you what, that's four very, very good rugby players you've made there. One of the things that you you have brought in to, to regulate your insulin now, you're going to keep me keep me correct with all the savvy ins and outs of this okay because i know you'll pick me apart if i don't but you've brought in a keto diet uh -huh. um, and i'm almost sure you did that last pre-season or the pre-season before yeah and it, and it didn't it wasn't great was it at first no so we're gonna get to that um yeah so if you can give us an idea first of what like you know what that keto diet is like you okay. know for, for most people they're just gonna go 
well, it's a low-carb, high-fat diet. But really talk about it as, you know, tell us what sort of stuff you eat. You know, I sit, I sit with you every day and watch you eat and, and it's, it's easy for me. But what does a diabetic keto diet look like? So that's difficult because there are there are lots of different versions of keto of the keto okay so diet. what what's yours so, what's so yours my, let's talk personally so my version or in in effect i'd say it's a very low carbohydrate carbohydrate diet i can't i can't necessarily commit to it being keto in order for it to be keto my body needs to produce be producing a certain amount of ketones which i'm not i'm not always within those ranges when mm. i when i do test mm -hmm. so the long and short is that i it was explained to me once a couple of years back that as a diabetic i'm in effect carbohydrate intolerant mm -hmm. which when you say it like that makes complete sense my mm -hmm. body is not able to process carbohydrate on its own it needs help to do so mm -hmm. so if you were any other kind if you had any other kind of intolerance you'd probably cut it out well, so you got the dairy intolerances, the gluten intolerances, and they right. basically just cut those out completely. Yeah, and that tends to resolve the health issue, mm -hmm. generally speaking. Yeah. So, with with that mindset, you then look at sport and think that, in, in certainly in our world, you you have to have carbohydrate for energy, which again is 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 still still the advice really. I got put onto a few podcasts by Max Stelling, one mm -hmm. of one of our ex teammates. Yeah. Um, very very intelligent man but but always wanted to look at kind of the cutting edge in sport absolutely um and he put me on a couple of podcasts because there was a guy talking in the us who's an expert on this stuff this guy is a bodybuilder he's a lecturer he works for nasa he works for the special forces wow but it was the athlete side of it that got me interested yeah so how is he a bodybuilder how is he a power athlete repeat high intensity athlete but able to not eat carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. So that got me interested. And it was kind of just marrying up. So if I'm gonna cut carbs from my diet to help with my diabetes, how can I still get a sports performance side of it, uh, like off, off the back of it? And listen, listen to loads of podcasts, read loads of books, dived straight into it and failed catastrophically as you saw firsthand yeah, when I'm like basically passing out in the middle of fitness sessions. Yeah, so just to give a bit of context on that, I remember you starting it in pre-season and as you've stated earlier, like someone who would regularly win fitness tests, someone who would regularly win, you know, every conditioning t aspect. I remember looking at you in sessions and thinking he just does not look right. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't quite tell why because I was actually probably unaware of what you were doing with your diet. Mm. You know, I look at your plate at lunchtime and I probably just thought he was trying to lose a bit of his holiday weight. <laughs> I don't know that, not that there's <laughs> yeah. not much on you, but you know, and then as it transpired, you, you were basically having to drop out of conditioning sessions. I remember looking over and you'd, you'd virtually collapsed in one of our conditioning sessions. Uh -huh. And for that, I was going, there's something not right here because yeah. you're normally way ahead of me and you're now basically, well, you're beside me. Well, as you, I was still catching up with you, <laughs> but so there was a huge obstacle at the start of this and, were you scared or, or or did you realize that it just you just hadn't quite got it right? Yeah, so so I I, I quite quickly realized, yeah, I've not got this right. Mm -hmm. I've 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 died, As you're lying I've on the turf. As I'm lying on the turf thinking, <laughs> why am I feeling so terrible? Yeah. But the thing that kept me going was the impact it had on my diabetes. Okay. So so on the diabetes, was the objective to eventually end up not needing to to inject as regularly or was it to maybe not have to inject the same amounts regularly what was the actual target so the target was as i just as i explained earlier traditional diabetes management is about riding that blood glucose roller coaster yeah. and cutting those carbs out 
allowed my blood glucose to to stay very very stable so flatten and i mean it would flatline mm. throughout an entire day it would barely nudge up or down it mm. would stay at what what would be deemed as like the healthiest possible level it could be mm-hmm. and for things like longevity for it has all kinds of impacts which I'll, I'll touch on in a minute but that was the objective was to gain regain control over that and mm-hmm. to inject less insulin because yeah. the issues that di- diabetics have is we're dealing with quite large quantities of insulin yeah that when you get those measurements wrong as i was early on you put yourself in huge amounts of risk yeah and i was doing that on a daily basis and it turned out even at night time when i was going to bed um, hooked up to a continuous blood glucose monitor, which I remember that message. Your Robocop arm, my yeah, Robocop yeah. arm. It was my my power pack for yeah. my bionic yeah. forearm. <laughs> so that, but that gave me data that I didn't have before. Yeah. So I was dropping into hypoglycemia, low blood glucose, pretty much every night. Really. Not waking up, and mate, that's like that's that's, quite, that's scary. That's scary because if I were to drop any lower, you're talking bad stuff. Yeah. happening you need in hospitalization so that was another aspect you know i wanted to cut those risks out for mm. me and for the family yeah, of course hopefully I'll joe's be around. beside you having to stab <laughs> insulin into your yeah, heart exactly. <laughs> so it was being backed up by having that data by seeing my blood glucose more stable than it had ever been mm-hmm. i thought right this is worth pursuing and i went to get some help from someone who specialized in the diet and specialized in helping people with health issues such mm-hmm. as diabetes and there's a lady locally by the name of Lynn Adams who mm-hmm. I'm still very very friendly with yeah and we're we will be working together in the future on, cer- on certain things we're still yet to decide what that looks yeah, like yeah but you give me a shout out whenever you want them you can we can release them first here in the podcast be good but she, she is unbelievable and what she doesn't know about any diet and also now much more sport and performance it's not worth knowing right so she guided me along the way. She gave me a kind of program to follow. As you know, as athletes, we're very good at following programs when they're given to us. Yeah. So I just cracked on and I felt almost instantly so much better. I put the weight on that I'd lost. I started turning up a bit more in fitness sessions. My performances, I feel, from last season was probably my most consistent year. Mm-hmm. Played arguably my best rugby yeah but the biggest thing the biggest thing that this diet has done for me other than the diabetes control other than you know having almost having that weight lifted off me that i i know how to manage this now mm. um i genuinely thought i would have retired last year from the injuries that i've had yeah and the way my body was feeling a couple of years back making this shift on this diet can you hugely genuinely rejuvenated my entire body yeah things like inflammation uh joint pain don't get me wrong i still yeah you still get sore i still get sore but there's no way i'd be playing at this level had it not been for that diet change And, and and i can honestly say that there's no way so for that to be the one thing i've changed it's quite a powerful thing yeah Absolutely, of course it is. I mean, it's basically giving you more time in, in professional sport than maybe, you, like you said, you'd thought you'd have. Yeah, and I, I would definitely agree. Well, I think you've been you've been awesome since I joined here six years ago. But last year, you looked like, oh, it's hard to describe, you looked like you were five years younger. Mm. You looked a little bit faster. You've always been a bit of a freak in the gym, which breaks me because you just constantly lift more weight than I do. <laughs> uh, but you've been a freak in the gym, but you you looked like, 
I don't know. I thought it was just because I don't know. You maybe getting a bit more sleep, which is definitely not the case because you just, <laughs> you know, you've got two kids. So, yeah. but I would agree. I, I think there's definitely been up on a definite upward curve in your performance. Mm. Um, and in terms of, so are we? Are we not? We're calling this not a keto diet. Then you know, it doesn't. Need, we're calling it a low carb, high fat diet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll yeah. go along that that line. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Well, then that rules out any of the ketosis, keto flu, and keto breath stuff. But that still happens. It still happens. Yeah, we'll just put like, it the, the penal diet then. My missus, like, I, th- I think she was almost scared to tell me. Joe was almost <laughs> scared to tell me. But my breath, my breath has been terrible, and I'm well aware. Like, I honestly, I've got, I've got chewing gum on me constantly. No, you've got some there. Lovely. Yeah, I knew it was just from a shit chat. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think. It, it it is it is a a side effect the yeah. keto breath the keto flu I went through which you saw yeah which was it was horrendous but once I got things right I felt mm. good yeah um but yeah I do I do I am aware if my breath is honking every now and again well so listen I sit next to you in meetings yeah we sit beside each other so I'll I'll make sure I keep telling you yeah please do um in terms of the in terms of the club what sort of help have you had through nutritionists in there obviously when one of their players is going through something like diabetes and then they're making adjustments to their diet like you were was there we obviously have some amazing nutritionists um Jordan Higgins is mm. probably one of the best I've worked with um was, was there much help from from him or people who were there beforehand in terms of the diabetes side of the it. diabetes and then obviously just with you i know you spoke about the lady who, who yeah. helped you with the ins and outs of this diet but as a professional rugby club we have people on hand who are there to try and give you advice you know jordan and you work quite closely together mm. i have you know see you working together quite a lot but what sort of help did they as a professional rugby club in those people in those roles give you so so interestingly, Jordan Jordan erred on the side of caution, really, with it, and yeah. he 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 sort of advised against it. But yeah. he said, you know, if you if you're willing to stick at it and you're willing to try it, go for it. If it doesn't work out, we just we just go back and you crack on as normal. And like the normal kind of diet for me is pretty much what everyone else eats at that time. Yeah. Everyone else eats anyway, so that's easy to fix. Once I got a bit further down the road with it, and I'd figured out these teething issues, should we say? collapsing in sessions yeah um alarm bells ringing yeah th- that's that's when kind of jordan when i started to i guess show that it was working for me that's when he was like right okay yeah i can see it. it's working for you amazing how can we help mm-hmm. and then he's been excellent um liaising with the kitchen staff making sure i've got kind of what i need yeah, you get your own you get your own lunch prepared for you every day my, not every day no, not no, every no. day mate so, listen i sit in there and i watch them hand <laughs> deliver your lunch to you every day your nice little plate with your salad and all. no this is not fair <laughs> <laughs> um sometimes but, yeah the, so so the, the chefs um if there is nothing on the menu that kind of works for me they yeah. will prep me something yeah uh that does and that's been through the conversations i've had with jordan about um, what what works for me, etc. And as you say, one of the hardest working guys in that field, always keen to learn, yeah. very, very keen to help. So he's been fantastic. But it, it is quite easy because, you know, we, we turn up, there's a portion of protein, sort of three or four options in front of you. Yeah. Whatever it is, there's usually one that doesn't have carbs on it. So like today, for example, we had steak. Yeah. And then you, you go around to the salad bar and there's usually a selection of salads yeah, that I can eat. Salads, yeah. And all I need to do is put some good quality olive oil on top of that and plenty of salt and a bit of pepper. And you're flying. That's me. Yeah. That's all I need. 
So do you treat food like fuel more than ever? Or I, I know you love food because yeah. I know I know in the house you do. I don't know if we should say it, but in the house you do the majority of the cooking. I, I, do, think, yeah, you, I do. You do all the cooking. All the know. cooking. Right. Well, you do all the cooking. I know you have a real passion for food, but is there part of you that just treats it like a fuel for your body? Um, I'd say in between sessions, yeah. So when it's like getting a shake or something mm. like that, if I'm making, you'll have seen me with with the blender making a yeah. shake. Like they're not particularly enjoyable no. things to get down. But so that that is a case of, right, I need to get this fuel in me. I need to get the protein in me um, to supplement the training that I've just done. Yeah. Um, but generally food is, yeah like you say it, it is it is a huge passion of mine it is my one of my biggest escapes from rugby yeah and is, you need to have those. in the kitchen oh mate i love it and and the whole kind of keto low carb world has opened up a massive amount of different recipes that i would mm. never have even considered making you're touching weird stuff when you're eating them you know some of those things oh like yeah that. oh yeah it, no it is odd mm. but your taste changes as well yeah. when, when you cut out all the sugar and everything um, your taste your taste buds do change so something that I'm eating that I think is unbelievable I'll be like oh lads try these try these brownies I made them the other day and they're like what the fuck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that tastes like I'm like is that not nice like, <laughs> no it tastes like fucking cardboard I'm like alright oh, okay well, back to the drawing board yeah and the other thing I see you rocking about with is your bone broth yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. and you yeah. love this bone broth don't you like being deadly serious yeah so I do I do like I do make my own bone broth I don't go through as much as I used to. Yeah, it was weird. It has nothing you. to do with you taking the piss out of me constantly. Oh my goodness. Every time I walk into a meeting room, just so you guys know, every time I walk into a meeting room, I tend to have a black coffee. <laughs> Niall looks at me and goes, bone broth, is it? Bone broth, is it? <laughs> and you go, yes. yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, you just say yes to humor just me. Say yes. But, but that, that tasted like basically, well, I'll be honest, it tastes like dirt mixed with hot water. <laughs> <laughs> the one that I... That, I uh, that you tried a beef bone broth. Mm. Um, the other ones are nicer, are they? That I've been cooking for about probably about thirty odd hours. Oh like really? A so it's a huge bit of effort. Slow, low, slow. Just put it in the in the slow cooker. Um, it's a lot of effort for wow. like a liter and a half of liquid. Liquid. Yeah. <laughs> like, but dirt, you do love it. You, you do love what it. I love about it is genuinely it's stuff like that that stops me from collapsing mm. in sessions. Well then keep drinking Because it. it's the minerals and the salts that I wasn't replacing, okay. that you lose from cutting out carbs, yeah, yeah. that I wasn't replacing in my diet, yeah. which meant my body wasn't able to cope with the demands. So as soon as I replace those minerals, um, which bone broth is very good for, <laughs> I, it, meant I could, it meant I was fine, so. Well, long may you keep can drinking it then if that's what it's going to stop you collapsing beside me on the pitch. Yeah. Um, right, one of the many challenges you faced was the diabetes. Mm -hmm. Other things, you know, slightly later in your career, you obviously went through some pretty long, dark periods with injuries, some of them backed up, back to back. You mentioned your shattered ankle when mm -hmm. you were, you know, in your late teens. Um, two ACLs as well other things talk us through some of those injuries you know which of them hit you the hardest obviously i've had my fair share of, yeah. of injuries and i know what that period looks like um if you start off by just telling us which injuries you've had which ones you want to disclose anyway Ooh. yeah okay so um i've had fracture dislocations both my ankles yeah that's a good way to start my my right ankle i had surgical complications and developed compartment syndrome wow which shortened my 
the 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 calf muscle that controls your uh, flexor longus lucis, which yeah. are, which is basically the first three toes. Yeah. Um, that muscle shortened, which meant my first three toes curled. That was the worst thing that has that I've had by far because I couldn't walk on hard floors without without it being agony, and I had surgery to. It was like it was just a berserk surgery. It was something they they'd not done before. Yeah. To loosen this tendon to just give me a bit more length on it, so I could straighten my toes. Yeah. Um. That was that was a turning point because I could suddenly. <laughs> they're, they're still not straight now. So we had little, That's it. like little club feet. Yeah, basically, on just on my right foot. Mm. It was a nightmare. It was horrific. So was that one of the most difficult to get back from that that straight sort of complication? So I was. I was pl- I played rugby for about eighteen months with that, oh my and goodness. I just I was not able to play the way I wanted to. Yeah. Like I was, I was significantly slower. I was in pain when I was running. Mm. Like didn't feel dynamic. Like my confidence took a massive hit. So I went fracture dislocation left ankle. I went ACL left knee, ACL revision left knee, meniscus tear left knee. Fracture dislocation right ankle, 18 months of playing, then had the surgery to stretch, stretch the ligament, yeah. which was done over an off season. So that didn't, didn't stop me as such. I then had, after that, it was my neck. So I came back, played for a few seasons. Then I had my neck issue, which was basically a bulging disc mm-hmm. and like had to clear out the foramen, but no issues, touch wood, no issues with that. Now and then everything else has just been like little yeah little knocks. bits of wear and tear that that yeah. we all go through. But yeah, absolutely. I think it's fair to say you know that is a fr- it's an it's a crazy collection of of injuries. It's a lot of surgeries. It's a lot of surgeries, but my point on it is you move really really well. You know when mm. people see you moving on a rugby pitch, when we, when people would see, wouldn't see you moving in the gym, but when I do, like the way you move is is pretty much how you'd want to look. So you've you've done an amazing job to get back with those. Having done an ACL myself, I know there's an it's an amazing bracket and window to get some really good ath- like athletic mm. development. Um, I must have missed the window on that though. <laughs> no, but you you get an amazing window to basically come back and move better, move faster, and move stronger. Yeah. You obviously used those opportunities, but what were some of the mental challenges that you went through at times throughout that? Like before, a bit of background on mine. I went right syndesmosis, right hamstring, yeah. tendon into a left ACL, which kept me out for about eighteen months. Yeah. And I know some of those days were some of the darkest I've faced as a professional rugby player and in my personal life. Mm-hmm. What sort of things drag you through that, you personally? It's really, really hard to say, isn't it? Like, there, there, there were some really dark times. Mm. Like, I, I went through a period when my tendons were messed up and I was still playing. I couldn't break back into the first team. Mm. And I was club captain at the time. But I was, I was doing like 20 minutes on a Saturday in the Prem, coming off the bench into 80 minutes on a Monday yeah repeat and that's that's fucking hard in the body that was tough yeah so I'm club captain I'm 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 doing a lot of rugby mm-hmm. I'm not able to play the way I want I'm not able to break back into a first team because of that issue with your toes because I couldn't I couldn't move, move the way you wanted to yeah so I wasn't effective in games there's no there's no way I should have been playing probably yeah. probably shouldn't have been on the bench if I'm honest <laughs> on the Saturday that was that was hard to go through I had moments where I where I was in in the A-League in an A-League match, like looking around thinking, it, it's, a, it's a mental challenge, but even even something ridiculous, like you're playing against kids and I'm thinking, you know, I'm like, this might sound ridiculous, right? But I, I'm, get, I'm getting paid, I'm getting paid way too much to be doing this. Mm. Like I, I wasn't, don't get me wrong, like 
never been on a berserk contract no, but like no again I, I, i'm not even feeling like i'm good enough to be doing that at yeah. that time so your confidence is taking a massive hit and, massive. and you don't feel like you're justifying your worth yeah, yeah that's it so that's tough mm. that's really tough to take and almost i was lucky i guess with all the stuff and i'm still lucky with all the stuff away from the rugby club in terms of joe in terms of my family yeah i've got a few really good good close friends yeah it's that side of thing thing that i've been lucky with that again has pulled me through those tough times absolutely i'd say that's more important than anything else having those things around me of course it is because yeah. at the end of the day you know rugby comes and goes but your family and your friends are what drag you through those dark times mm. i remember like coming into the club you know no one i had staring down the barrel of like a rehab session, rehab, gym, gym, and a conditioning session, and just thinking, driving in, going like, I can't do this. Yeah. I would walk in the building, I'd see one person, and that one person could just get me through the day by just mm. giving me a little bit of banter or just saying like, Flip, you're starting to look quite big, or Flip, yeah, you, yeah, I saw yeah. you running on the pitch the other day. Was that your first running session? And those little comments from people around the club or support from your wife or your, or you know, even just going home to see your kids. Yeah. You know, my kid is basically Benji, the yeah. dog, the, sh the black schnoodle, <laughs> who drags me, he drags, basically dragged me through with Claire. Because you, you got Benji, didn't you, around the time of your, was it your ACL? Yeah, so I, I got my, I, I tore my, my ACL 10 days later, lost my old man to yeah. a battle with cancer and, and had basically just got Benji, so we had to go back, um, get <laughs> get Dad's funeral over and done with, yeah. come back, and then get straight back into my surgery and my rehab. Now that is without a shadow of a doubt the darkest period I've been mm. through, and I mean I do not exaggerate when I say my wife Claire and that little ball of fur dragged me through yeah. that some of the days where I just got home. And, you know, I know he's not my kid, but, you know, he's the closest thing to a kid I can have. And I think kids do that. They basically, I got home and it didn't matter whether I'd had a crap rehab day. He was happy to see me. Absolutely. You know, Claire, touch and go. But it's <laughs> <laughs> depending on my mood, probably. Oh, you again. But, yeah, oh, you're in bad form again. But, yeah, it is It is the people around you. It is your environment. Yeah. It is your home life that gets you through some of those really bad times. Mm. Yeah. I think we're very lucky. And I think, you know... Again, just the theme of the of, of, of this chat, resilience, the resilience you showed to get back from those things was incredible. So then we, we skipped forward through on the Worcester Warriors and in 2014, shortlisted for Player of the Year. Mm, I was. Yeah, make you feel a bit <laughs> I had awkward. a good season. Yeah. So you topped the stats for most defenders beaten with 69 and meters game with 1708. I mean, those are crazy stats. And, and off the back of that, you're follow, you follow it up with an international uh, call-up. So that was a nuts year. Yeah. Where, so our back three was um, myself, Dave Lemmy, and Josh Drowning you. Yeah, it's a crazy good back three for, they, beat, for beating people. Like, they were unreal. Played against Lemmy. Guys. Nightmare yeah. to tackle. Yeah. Played with Joshy e. D. Yeah. Absolutely carved people. Just looked like he was gliding. Mate, one of the, if not the best, like broken field runner. Yeah, I've ever played with. But like, we got relegated that year. If I'm correct in yeah. saying. Yeah. So it wasn't just yeah. I was at the top of those stats, but two and three were Josh and Dave mm -hmm. in all, in meters made and defenders beaten. So yeah. our back three, we 
we were te- tearing up. We were tearing up, but we were, pro- we were probably running too much. <laughs> That's why you weren't so, winning any games. <laughs> so yeah, we didn't win any games because we were putting we were probably putting everyone else under too much pressure. But it was a lot of fun. Like we were almost given the license just to go and have a crack. And yeah, that was that was a good year in terms of just getting ball in hand and and charging about the place and with those two loonies outside you you just yeah. g- gave it to them and watch them go basically just follow them get, get an offload look yeah. for another one exactly I think it's amazing but I think looking back on on those stats is, and your performances individually I know I know how the season went I know Worcester got relegated but just to separate those from your performances the stats that you racked up and then finally getting that international call up you've got to reflect on that you know if you take a second and just think from where you come from facing the battles with your diabetes and the battles that you have with injuries as we just discussed you did fucking well man yeah yeah i did i did and yet like i think one day when i do sit back and kind of take stock i might allow myself a pat on the back but when we spoke earlier about Mm. luck i cannot explain to you how much luck i had that year to be in the position i was in to get to get that opportunity with england what also massively helped was the fact that our dor at the time was dean ryan yeah who was one of the most if and still is obviously incredibly respected in the game yeah and he was like blowing my trumpet every week in the press yeah well i remember when doing the research for this like i i did see some of the articles and dean rightfully so dean was pushing you hard in the media yeah. and you deserved every single one of the mentions and like you said dean has a real drag and a swagger in the game people oh, yeah. just listen to him um because of his rugby knowledge but also his persona yeah yeah exactly so i, I almost had like had everything going for me i was playing well i was racking up some good stats and i had this big fucker in the in my corner <laughs> yeah. like who's not afraid to go and tell swinging people. the pen in the independent every yeah. week it yeah. was like mass yeah massively backing me up so i, fi- I finished that season um, and I was due to play for the Barbars. Dean was the coach, oh, really? was coach for the Barbars for that uh, the, their wow. match against England. So he was like, "I want you to play because if England are not going to pick you, I'll pick you. I'll pick you, wow. and you can go and show them what you can fucking do." So I was like, "Amazing, yeah, yeah I'm in." Um, and then that went from it went from that to getting a, getting a call from Andy Farrell saying, "We want to bring you into camp." you'll play against the Barbarians, Dean's Barbarians mm-hmm. at Twickenham. It would be a great experience for you. We'd love to see what you're about. But because of the way it worked with fixtures and travel, etc., that means that you won't come on tour with us. Just just so you get your head around it now, it'd be great to have you in camp, but you're not going to come on tour. Okay, happy days. Like, yeah. like just to be even given a shot in an England jersey, albeit not non-capped, awesome. And then I think it was the Prem cup final maybe or yeah. it might have been the semi-final the prem semi-final i think it was sorry and anthony watson um pulled his hammy yeah which meant that i would go and train i got taken out the barbars game and we're going to train the... with the touring squad yeah but still adamantly told <laughs> you won't be coming on tour <laughs> you are almost in in the nicest way possible you're here to make up the numbers yeah because uh, anthony will be fit he'll be fine for that mm. first test so you're good, but we'd love to have you in camp again. Although I wasn't going to be playing a, another step closer to that playing ticket. Yeah. It wasn't until the night before the touring party left that I was told you, you're going. That's mental. <laughs> we sat in alphabetical order on the plane and I was with the W's for Watson. 
I literally had his plane ticket. Oh my goodness. So like, mate, to say I was lucky to get on that plane and because <laughs> the other the other thing was because the Prem rugby final was scheduled so late, mm. the guys involved in the Prem rugby final weren't allowed to play in that first test, which meant that that bench spot was open. It was going to be Anthony Watson's first cap. Yeah. It was open for me. So again, there's all these things falling in place yeah. that meant I was incredibly lucky. Like, like I know what you're going to say. I deserved it. Yeah, yeah, you've beat me to it. There are so many other people that deserve it too. Yeah. That but don't get that that those things that fall into place, that luck that falls into place. So I will sit back and say, when I'm all done and all said and done, boots hung up, I say, well done for doing it. But I'll also appreciate how how many things fell into place for it to happen. It's an amazing attitude to have. It really is because, you know, not everyone can sit and think as rationally about the things that they've succeeded and had success with so i take my hat off to you for that <coughs> not not that it's the only thing that motivates you but is there is there a part of you that goes out and plays like i play with a huge chip on my shoulder it's just my mentality it's just the person i am mm. that is what drives me mm. it does part of you think about that ever when you go out to play you know i should have more i should have played more and you like me you know maybe just a small part of you no, yeah. I don't think so. I think, I think I always played. Certainly early on, I played to kind of prove myself. Yeah, and maybe that's like the flip side of never, never having that goal of being a pro rugby player. Yeah. Is that when I eventually got there, I almost wasn't worthy. Mm, you, like, didn't, you didn't perceive yourself. Yeah, as Yeah, exactly. So I think that certainly at a younger age, and then, um, and then along came Bryce Heem. Mm-hmm is the long and short yeah. and he kind of taught me a different way to look at it yeah. and I, I've had more enjoyment from playing yeah. over the last couple of years than I've ever had before yeah Bryce's attitude is incredible oh, un, like unbelievable And but he's he's very lucky because he can have that attitude yeah. and still run over the top of 10 people yeah well, he's also 6 foot 4 and 112 kilos of basically lean fast switch muscle yeah 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 so like it's got to be quite easy to play. Well, um, <laughs> he does things I couldn't dream of. But his, but his whole kind of persona, and even on, yeah. even on game day, like I never, I never really had crack on the pitch. Mm-hmm. Like, like how you'd have moments and stuff, but never allowed myself to kind of really enjoy it. Yeah. And then with with Bryce, you you'd be pissing yourselves laughing like yeah. out in that back, out in that <laughs> yeah. back, back three on the edge, and like. While there's, you know, however many thousand of people watching, but actually like relishing that moment and enjoying it for what it was yeah. and having those moments almost when the ball wasn't in play, mm. but sometimes when it was in play, yeah. like that's, that's a great, that's a great way to play the game. Like yeah. that's, that's a lot of fun. It's that is, that fun. is probably what we would all dream of doing. He pulled it off, you mm. know, he really, really did yeah. like what he did for Worcester, you know, probably yeah. one of the best, like having him and, him and Jazzy on the wings. They were two of the best wingers we've ever had. Yeah, 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 I'd agree. So that leads us nicely off the back of all the things you did into loyalty in sport, which is Mm. the next kind of topic I want to discuss because you're one of professional rugby's very rare one-club men. Mm -hmm. It's now fairly outdated and rare to consider someone spending the entirety of their academy through to professional rugby, you know, to, to now. We can only speak to now. 
as as a woman club man, whenever professional rugby becomes almost more unloyal, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, yeah, you yeah. know the way that you see people being spat out the game, contracts flipping and changing, and it's such a volatile nature of what we do and what coaches do, you know, with the ability for owners to change, coaches to change, that can create huge uncertainty for us as players. So as someone who's done that, how do you reflect on what, you know, the the entirety of your Worcester career? And do you think that that one club man label and and what people do when they stay at a club for, for, you know, the entirety of their career will start to become more and more rare? I I hope not actually, especially especially at Worcester. Um, I'd love to see four or five of our young guys that are coming through now do what I've been lucky enough to do. Absolutely. Um, and what that would mean then for the club. Yeah. Going forward, I came from an academy which you spoke about last week with Grosey. I came from an academy of like it was cur- it was producing some incredible talent and. The only people that weren't benefit benefiting from it were was Warriors because yeah. everyone was going off and playing rugby elsewhere. So just a couple of the guys who came through that academy with you, you had yourself, Grovesy, but then you had um, Matt Mullen, Matt Mullen, Miles, Miles, Benjamin. Miles Benjamin. Well, Big Kitch is obviously back. Big now. Kitch has gone and come back. Matt Kvezic, Dylan Hartley, and Dylan Hartley is one that people often forget because he he's gone on to have such a had such an amazing career with Northampton, but he actually did start in Worcester. Yeah, do we say Tom Wood? We, already we didn't said say him. Tom Wood. No. Tom Wood. It's um, a lot of good rugby players. And then there was uh, Richard Blaze, who went off to Leicester, mm-hmm. who was touted to be you know potential England second row. Um, there's probably a few others to be fair that so, I'm not remembering, but yeah so loads and loads of good quality players yeah. came through but why did the club never quite get it right to hold on to them why why have you why did you Grovesy and Johnny R with the excuse of you know some of the other rugby that they played mm. but not at, at a full time professional level the three of you I would consider one club men mm-hmm. why did we not manage to keep the rest of them I'd say it's a it's a, it's a, it's a really tough question the most obvious thing is that boys wanted international recognition yeah and there was a lot of talk, certainly from England coaches, certainly from clubs, certainly from agents, that you need to be playing in the top six, you need to be playing Champions mm-hmm. Cup rugby, Heineken Cup rugby, in order to be in that shop window to play international. Because it was the closest thing to international rugby you could you could get domestically. So as a young man who'd been given an opportunity at a club maybe a couple of years sooner than you would elsewhere, yeah. at the top level and you were playing well, to be dangled that carrot, 100% I understand why they would do that. Yeah, of course. Don't forget, at that time, I wasn't playing a huge amount because I was injured. Mm-hmm. I spent of the first like six years of my career, probably three and a half on injured. Injured. So I wasn't playing as much. Mm-hmm. The other side of it for me personally was that I stuck around because the club showed me loyalty that they didn't need to. When I was young, out of contract, on the physio bed, yeah, they said we 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 want to keep you on, we, yeah, and and they didn't have to do that. No, and there's a part of me that is like. You know, I, I I can't do enough for them for that. Yeah. And allowing me to kind of keep pursuing that dream. I was going to say, I also don't underestimate the power of the local club. And there's not many people that get the opportunity to be born in a city, for the city to have a professional rugby team and to, for you to get the opportunity to play for that professional rugby team. And you see, I get that because, you know, where I'm from in Ireland, 
we our rugby's done provincially so yeah. you grow up mo- more times than not it's becoming more common now for people to swap between provinces but mm. the majority and the makeup of the province is where you're born and bred and that's what i you know i don't see as much of that here in, in the premiership because it's more of basically like a premier league yeah. uh, football premier league where people just move around and do what they want so i get that sense of attachment to to like my club my home province ulster I will always be very, very proud, even though I only played about 20 times for them. Hugely proud to have played for that that, re- that province. How, in order to move forward, do you keep people in the region playing for the clubs? Because there's a, there is a different feel. There is. I think you look at the likes of Sharkey, Millsy, mm-hmm. Ted, Jadzi to a large extent, the guys that kind of were very close or have gone on to play international rugby. Yeah by playing for Worcester, yeah. it is possible to do it. So they've broken the mould or the perception the that perception you cannot play. The perception is starting to change. Yeah. And I think, obviously, that's coupled with, you know, the challenge of moving up the table. Yeah. And if Worcester can kick on the way that we know we we know we can and are more consistent in that mid-table, more of these guys will be taken more seriously. We play in a better standard of rugby, more guys will get caps. And it and it it's a cycle. Of, yeah, big you time. Stop the cycle. Yeah, and then it's the next generation. Then it's the kids in the local schools that see Ted, that see Willie Butler, mm-hmm. those boys. You know, come through the system, go on and play international rugby, still play for Worcester, and if they stay at one club, imagine in ten, fifteen years' time, then when those guys come through. Yeah, I think you're bang on. Yeah, like that's got to be that's got to be the future of a of a really strong sustainable rugby club and i do think that's the vision that the club has has put out you know there's no doubt about it like solly and and the other coaches have set out with this we are going to breed players from our academy mm. you know there's no doubt about it and you you can see some of them coming through i just wonder in the in the world of professional sport i worry as to how many of them are going to become one club men i think what mm. you what you guys did uh i would have i would have killed to, to have been a one club man but this, the loyalty that you've shown is amazing and you must have had opportunities. You know, we can speak candidly here. Like You must have had opportunities to leave when you're at your best because like we talked about earlier, you were knocking on and finally went through that international door. Mm. You were topping charts. You were showing your ability and yet you chose to stay. Is that just down to the loyalty that the club showed you? Yes and no. Like that, that is a huge part of it. Don't get me wrong. Um, I was also given assurances, maybe naively, from the England staff at that time that um, because they knew the setup, they knew the the quality of coaching I was getting under Dean and his regime, that they would still consider me. Maybe, like I say, maybe naively at that time. But again, like I, f- I missed off an injury. So <coughs> the end of that summer, I I tore my groin. Oh, and I, I had remember. To have surgery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's another injury that fucked me up for, for a long time. <laughs> yeah. A long time. Um, <laughs> still, still angry? Still got some side effects. <laughs> yeah, still angry. <laughs> um, but my point is, you never know what's around the corner. Yeah. So let's say I'd have gone off to whoever it may be, a Gloucester, Leicester, Saris, whoever, whoever it might have been. Who's to say that I wouldn't have just picked up another injury there and been out for the season and then like back to square one, in effect. Yeah. Come, come back to Worcester, played in the playoff playoff finals etc could have could have been i could be sitting in exactly the exact same position you never know and you can't really live your life like that and and that's the that's the beauty of it you mean you made your decisions i think you make your decisions with all the information you have available to you at that time yeah and as long as 
it's a considered approach that's that's the, that's all you can hope for absolutely and everything else is out of your out of your control i agree i couldn't couldn't agree more so how do you summarize your career so far and i say so far because that last game we played against saints was in my opinion one of the best i've seen you play do you have any fond memories of the years that have gone past any special moments that stick out i guess bar bar the obvious ones like the bristol games the first time i got promoted pirates um debuts tries etc like genuinely the other the other aspect to have been to have been at worcester for as long as i have mm -hmm. is like the player turnover has been huge massive yeah, i've only i've noticed that and i've only been here six this is my sixth season so what it has exposed me to is so many different characters yeah. <laughs> along the way yeah we've met some people haven't oh we? mate like <laughs> it's it's when, when i think back to some of the guys um one of the supporters Lindsay, put together a list mm -hmm. of all the players that i have played with wow. in my time of my career in worcester and there were a lot some of names. guys <laughs> but you go through you go through them and you're like oh my goodness like that guy he was fucking mental or like little little stories pop <laughs> yeah. up in your head yeah i remember like tim collier chasing gary truman in the old team room and like putting his hand <laughs> through a glass door trying to catch him like they're playing like tig like kids yeah, yeah. it's it's all those random little memories that pop back like those for me are, are like some of the most special yeah. things that i'll take from my rugby career I, like the people and the moments it's sure. a bit we said last week um and the last episode sorry it is about the people it is about the memories and the and the relationships that you form and grosie put it brilliantly he said you know what we went through with that final will bond us for life because yeah. i still get goosebumps when i think about it and i know we discussed it briefly there but i put out a video on instagram in the build-up to this and like it, it still rattles me watching you score that try because <laughs> I don't understand how you had the composure to get up the first time and then try and score it closer. Shall I tell you why? Was it Millsy? No. Because you didn't want to take the kick? I, I, if I had to take that kick, like like being a sort of part-time yeah. goal kicker, knowing what Lammy would have faced. As it turned out, it wouldn't have fucking mattered for Lammy. <laughs> it could have as, been touchline. As he was we discovered it. last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Grosie. Um, <laughs> it wouldn't have mattered. But I, but I guess... If it were me, I, that in that moment, I knew if I had to take this kick, I would appreciate this extra five meters. Hundred <laughs> <100%. laughs> percent. I just don't know how you had the ability and the composure to do it because obviously we. I stood up from the scrum mm. and I'm screaming penalty try for a start, and I still yeah. think it should have been a penalty try. Yeah. But I've lifted my head, and all I'm thinking in my head is penal. Put the fucking ball yeah. down. That's all I'm hoping you do. Yeah. I don't care how it has to happen because as soon as I see. Lammy get the ball away. I'm thinking Millsy's got to clean two on one. Mm. Lammy shoots out, mm -hmm. and Millsy, as cool as calm, just passes the ball. That's and I'm way, just yeah. praying that you put that ball down. Yeah. But those extra yards, you know, Lammy will probably never admit it, but they will have made a difference because it just makes those posts look a little bit wider. Yeah, I, I think so. So that that was literally it. Like, you don't have time to consider anything else really. Yeah. Like, I could hit the ground on my elbow and the ball pops out. There's so much. So can you imagine that? Can't even think about Why it. Why didn't you put it down? Oh, I wanted to get closer to the no, I know, I know. It, it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> Just put the thing down. Lammy or kick. Like, yeah. there's so many eventualities that yeah. could have happened. Yeah. Um, but at that at that very moment, like, let's be honest, you don't have time to think things through. You just do. So I just did. Yeah. And then afterwards, maybe it's the rationale I can give it. 
because because I do do, do I do a bit of goal kicking. I would I would have preferred yeah. it closer, so I put it closer. Got seems, it as close to sticks as I could. It seems perfectly fair enough. It seems perfectly <laughs> fair enough. Should have been a penalty try anyway. Should have been. If only GJ could have controlled that ball at the back. If eh? only Gerrit Jan could control <laughs> the ball at the back of the scrum. You guys are sailing. Aren't <sighs> like? So we've been through a lot together. Some of the mm. memories that you've discussed. We've obviously, to some degree, yo-yoed. We've never been relegated, but we've yo-yoed our way through through leagues and then on the, the league table. What... Mm. What, in Chris Pennell's opinion, needs to change, or or what has changed, if you if you maybe perceive it that way, mm-hmm. for this club to really consistently move up the table? The common theme that I think, uh, like I've I've attributed so many of my things in my career down to luck, mm-hmm. like we need a bit of luck. We we have been so close for a while. Are we good enough to be top half of the table? Yeah. Yeah, I, I genuinely can say I believe that. I think yeah. we have a good enough squad. I think we've got a good enough um, 23 on a match day um, and we've got good depth, etc. You know, we've been very, very close. We've been very close. Like the Saints game, we're a couple of referees' decisions. We're, you know, a two-on-one, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. It, it only takes like a couple of those things to go right for us and then it, and then it kind of snowballs, mm-hmm. really. Because... The confidence that gives you when you start converting some of those opportunities yeah. is contagious. And then, I guess from a rugby perspective, like the type of team we are, we we're we're a movement team. We attack. Yeah. We attack with the ball. And 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 again, we kind of lose a bit of confidence when those scores don't come. Those opportunities yeah. are squandered. Yeah, it's a combination of you know millions of things that will influence it positively but if i had to say one thing it is it is a bit of luck yeah. and therefore giving us confidence as a team we start winning a few games the the other thing that has eluded us for a long time is consistency that was exactly what i was about to say that was my next point we've, yeah. we've never quite had a consistent game plan with consistent people i mean you talked earlier about turnover of bodies yeah you know we we regularly on a, on a yearly to bi-yearly basis turnover like 15 players to, to, to 20 players yeah it's a huge amount of turnover never mind the coaches and the changes of ownership that we've yep. been through you know those things do contribute to an, in, an inconsistent environment absolutely yeah yeah i couldn't agree more and then coupled with the confidence you've got consistency in the environment in the culture mm-hmm. in the style of play and you couple that with a tight group Quality players and a bit of luck. There's not a lot else you can do. It's again, it's out of your hands, really. And that that's that is kind of all I feel is missing: a bit yeah. of bit of consistency, a bit of time, and then just score a couple more tries. <laughs> just score more. Just score more points in the opposition. If we scored more points in the opposition. <laughs> We'd be all right. Um, so then, moving away from rugby briefly. Mm. Um, the beauty of this gives us an opportunity and for people to really find out what you know what stuff you do away from the club what sort of stuff what post rugby looks like because we have to prepare mm. for that you know you never know when it's going to happen what what does someone who's given so much to Worcester Warriors and Worcester as itself look to do in the area that he's given a lot to whenever mm. he finishes well i think i th- i think with the with me kind of committing my rugby career to date as you say, in in this area, like this is mm-hmm. home for us. Our kids are born here. The kids are at school. Joe's pretty settled, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
realistically we're going to be here unless things change drastically we're going yeah. to be here for a long time yeah um so what do i do afterwards what what i would love to do is i'd love to stay involved at the club yeah i'm not going to be a coach at this stage in the life plan that might that may change but we'll see because my, my my old man um gave me some advice um before he passed away he so he he had a you know injury plagued but successful cricket career with yeah. england um and he he then went on to coach he coached like scotland women's and then he ended up in his dream job at loughborough mm -hmm. and he ran the cricket academy at loughborough um he he never really enjoyed playing the game really really from the pressures and from yeah. everything else and he always said he was adamant when i'm done with cricket i'm done with cricket um there's no way i'm coaching yeah and he told me that he had more joy from coaching far more joy from coaching than he ever did playing the game yeah. and that that's kind of always stuck with me because <laughs> right now i don't want to coach and yeah. i think when i'm done with rugby i think i'll be ready for a bit of a break yeah but that's not to say that i won't go back mm -hmm. and look at a coaching route maybe so it's one of the possibilities you're looking at i think it's nice to have i think you'd make an amazing coach i think you've got the, the people skills you've got the knowledge of the game but you have to almost the way we're the, the intensity of what we do it's mm. nice to have options that's mm. really how i'm picturing this post rugby thing you want to have the option to stay in rugby because it's such a huge we are we're basically institutionalized into this professional rugby environment that's the word <laughs> that's the word <laughs> and i wonder is there something away from rugby that maybe you're looking at is there stuff that maybe maybe the food side something that you'd like to do yeah. or maybe you know i know you're also doing you done your degree in uh, sport business management nearly finished your degree in yeah. sports business management how does that tie into maybe st the other side of it away from coaching um it might not it might not it might not but it's kind it's, of it's something on the cv yeah um so what what would i i think i think your point on having options is a hundred percent right mm -hmm. um to give yourself options and to be able to make an informed decision when yeah. that time does come that is that's my dream really yeah so what kind of decisions will i hope to make i'd love to be involved at the rugby club yeah in some capacity be it on the commercial side of the business potentially be it that bridge between rugby and commercial who yeah. knows there could well be a role for me who knows the other things that i love like you said the health and nutrition side of it yeah so i mentioned very briefly earlier lynn, lynn adams who helped me with my diet we're we're going into business together yeah we don't know exactly what that looks like yet we know there's an opportunity there something we're both incredibly passionate about it's now a case of me trying to find find some time over the next couple of years mm -hmm. getting the balance right with that jordan higgins who we've mentioned yeah we've got a product that's going to be launched hopefully imminently brilliant um which is really exciting it's a pre-workout coffee oh wow um which the concept is unreal the product itself is really good we're taking all the crap out of like traditional kind of pre-workouts wow and using jordan's skills taking the active ingredients that actually have scientific backing that yeah. work yeah. unlike all the other shit that you get in these things yeah. at the levels that are proven to work yeah. and putting them into a caffeine controlled wow. pre-workout coffee 
That's Everyone amazing. loves their coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know the boys banging coffees at oh, the club. So this this that sounds like a really exciting venture. It's a it's a really cool thing. So so that that hopefully will be off the ground in the next couple of months. Um, and then alongside that, another one of my passions is property. Mm-hmm. And I um, I started a degree about seven years ago in um, in estate management, and it was way too much workload. Yeah. Just had just had Harla. I couldn't couldn't keep up. Like it was insane. I'd get home from training. I'd sit in front of the laptop. Joe would shout me in for dinner. I'd eat. I'd go back to the laptop. Yeah. I'd go to bed. And you also had a newborn baby. I wasn't seeing Joe. I wasn't seeing Harla. Yeah. It wasn't right. Um, found a training course recently, which will uh, I, when when I finish this current contract, I'll be a Rick's accredited property surveyor, yeah. residential surveyor and valuer. That's cool. Which is unreal. It's it's a field that I'm incredibly into yeah um and hopefully will open a few doors for me uh for a bit of life after that kind of career route so long and short is options i want to have a few of my own things going on and then i'd like the option to go into a career whatever that may be but in the meantime be a great dad a great husband and still play professional rugby well i think you're nailing all three of those mate i think you're well organized, you're well planned, and you're one of the most hardworking people I know. So I would just like to wrap it up and wish you a massive, massive thank you for being our second guest on Wind Your Neck In. We wish you all the best going forward. I think I'm particularly interested in that uh, venture with Jordan. Mm. That that pre-workout coffee will probably drag me through a couple of gym, <laughs> gym sessions whenever all I can hear is, is Sharky peppering me. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, wish you a huge, huge thank you and all the luck. I think some of the resilience you've showed in your career is testament and people should really drive and take some stuff away from that because you've dealt with a lot and you're one of the most humble, hardworking people I know. So a big thank you, Chris. Thanks very much for having me, mate. Thank you very much for listening to episode two and we hope to catch you soon.